Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I try to answer the provocative question, how does therapy actually work? As is typical for Reed and myself, we have a pretty meandering conversation and cover a lot of topics. We discuss how mental illness is defined, different psychotherapy approaches, common aspects to all psychotherapy approaches. We talk a little bit about how psychedelics might actually accelerate progress in therapy. Uh, We discuss whether or not artificial intelligent therapy programs are going to steal our jobs in the future and so much more. I wanted to take a second here in this intro and just thank all of you who have emailed us your questions and episode suggestions, those of you who comment on our YouTube videos and who have left us reviews in the Apple Podcast platform in particular. We read all this stuff, folks, and I got to tell you, some of those reviews have made my day. Some of you are very generous and enjoy the show, and that means the world to me. So if you'd like to email us, you can email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. If you'd like to follow Reed and myself on Instagram, you can find Reed at Doctor and myself at Dr. Steve Thayer. Without further delay, please enjoy today's episode. Yay. Yay. We are back. A message to our editor, Jamie. We should start the podcast with the yays. I think that was adorable. I hope this makes it into the podcast too. (laughs) We are back. With myself, Dr. Steve Thayer. I am here with the, I was going to say intrepid, but I used intrepid last time for Paul. So what should I use to describe you? The just painfully handsome Reed Robson. Cool. <laughs> um, I have our customary awkward intro. Today, we are going to talk about psychotherapy. So I have a question for you, Reed. Um, does psychotherapy work? Well, if it worked beautifully all the time we wouldn't have this podcast now would we or jobs um but i'm a big therapy fan Mm -hmm. uh but i don't i'm going to uh pass on answering that and suggest that you tell us first what the heck therapy is Mm. we could probably have a ping pong match of of obnoxious ontological questions Mm -hmm. like well that really depends what do we mean by mental health condition or mental illness we could rename the podcast to That Depends. <laughs> <laughs> that Depends with Reed and Steve. Yeah, I like it. One of our many podcast ideas. Yeah, so whenever I think about like, does psychotherapy work? What is psychotherapy? I'm always tempted to drill down to what I think is the question under the question. And that is like, uh, how is it that we know that we're struggling psychologically? And like, because how we define it probably dictates how we try to help. You don't have to have um, that big of a psychological struggle to warrant therapy. You could be doing therapy like before entering a marriage or relationship proactively, or you could be doing therapy to, in theory, to get to know yourself, right? I know. Yeah. So that, I mean, that does beg the questions that we started with. Like, well, if that's the case, what is it, right? And what's the difference between therapy and, and something like life coaching, like or. when when you and I both did our training, different paths up this mountain, mm-hmm. right? But we both were told, do some therapy so you know what it's like. Right. And before you start dishing it out, and we did. Mm-hmm. And I know I didn't go in with a, with a problem list or a problem. I went in just with openness. Curiosity. Yeah, and then, and then the blank slate just sat there and stared at me awkwardly. What, what kind of therapy did you it, I, I chose a psychodynamic psychotherapy because oh. I was really intrigued. Yeah. Not a formal analyst because I didn't have an hour to five days a week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although that is intriguing. Um, yeah. But uh, no, it was a great dynamic process and um, I learned a ton from it and, and she was amazing. It was like a, an archetypal, um, intimidating, silver-haired woman who was yeah. an awesome therapist. <laughs> Well, yeah, and this this sort of brings up more questions in my mind. Like, it, does therapy work? What is therapy? It depends on therapy. Can be so many different things, and like you were saying, it it can be for so many different things as well. 
Um, we've talked a lot on the podcast in previous episodes about how we define mental health conditions or mental illnesses. We've talked about the strengths and limitations of the DSM, the Diagnostical Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. Diagnosticals. The Diagnosticals. <laughs> the Diagnosticals of Narnia. Um, but yeah, I think you can go to therapy because you're curious. You want to do some introspection, some self-betterment. You can go to therapy because you um, have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. You're so depressed. I mean, you can go to therapy because um, you're super anxious and it's making your hair fall out. Like there's, there's a lot of, I yeah. have androgenic alopecia. It wasn't from stress. At least I don't think so. Anytime I make a hair comment, I'm suddenly conscious that I'm very bald. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Did yeah, you go to therapy for? Not for the <laughs> baldness, but I've been to therapy for many other things. Like you said, uh, we were encouraged to go and sort of get a flavor of what it's like to be on that side of the couch. Um, but yeah, I, I had to think I went to my first therapist in college when I was an undergraduate. And he was a disciple of, of Albert Ellis. So he did REBT, Rational Emotive Behavioral Therapy. Mm. So Ellis was a contemporary with like Aaron Beck, yeah. you know, the guy that... Uh, basically created cognitive behavioral therapy, Fritz Perls maybe, or is Perls, does Perls predate those guys? Well, I mean, Bo- older. Beck just passed away a couple years ago, right? In his 90s. 90s. Yeah. 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 So lots of, lots of different ways to define psychotherapy. I'm wondering how we could get down to brass tacks and the okay. basics. So let's put aside my distracting comment about uh, you can go to therapy when nothing's wrong and just mm-hmm. let's assume we all have stuff to work on and mm-hmm. we bring it to therapy mm-hmm. so one one thing i like to look for in the therapy room is not only entrenched patterns but entrenched patterns that are maladaptive mm. and so that's kind of a key uh signal that i'll go for is like maladaptive that. meaning it's not serving you well in your life because you might be flying off the handle every time someone cuts you off when you're driving home from work and you keep going to jail because you get out of your car with a baseball bat. <laughs> right. I like the term adaptive, maladaptive, because, you know, it implies that, um, you know, we're responding to a stimuli one way or the other, either adapting to the pressure that that stimuli puts on us mm-hmm. or we're not adapting. We've engaged in a behavioral pattern that doesn't help us survive and thrive. Kind of a, kind of like an evolutionary yeah. take on whether or not this is a problem. AKA, our reactions and responses that get us into trouble in life. Right. That could be mild, quiet, subtle trouble. It could be big trouble. Yeah. Another term that's often used is functional or dysfunctional. Yeah. Right. Do you, do you, are your reactions helping you function? Are they helping you function in the major areas of your life, like your work, your family, your schooling, your mm-hmm. community? self-care health or are they causing dysfunction yeah and so after after looking for the entrenched maladaptive patterns you know often in therapy well you tell me is we'll go looking for where they came from and why Mm -hmm. yeah Uh, the origin stories and different kinds of therapy will focus more or less on those origins you know therapies like cognitive behavioral therapy excuse me are famous for not really focusing too much on the origin stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, we want to have the context. Um, but the idea is that you don't necessarily, at least from those perspectives, don't you have don't to have, have to. You don't right? always get it. You don't always find the origin. Mm-hmm. Whereas something like psychoanalysis, you know, you're working working on those origins and trying mm-hmm. to heal from that place so that whatever's going on now, the entrenched maladaptive thinking patterns, behavioral patterns, feeling patterns sort of fix themselves once you fix it from the starting block. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me of that saying that we've used on the podcast before and probably said we want to make a shirt out of it (laughs) is uh, when it's hysterical, it's historical, Mm -hmm. meaning your responses, these in deeply entrenched patterns that are maladaptive and cause a response that gets you into trouble. If it's a big response, a big reaction, a hysterical one, then there's a pretty good chance it dates back to your childhood or some early life event or events um, that uh, entrenched itself as a pattern. Right. So therapy, like following that thread, therapy is a relationship that you engage in with a trained professional 
who will provide you certain basic things, basic things meaning things like compassion, listening, non-judgment, empathy, confidentiality, a plan, a structure, some predictability, some consistency, right? A lot of these things that you wouldn't get by default talking to just anybody else. Um, and so they're going to provide you that container. And within that container, you can do some exploring of the past, and then you can work directly on these patterns. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's sort of the off the top of my head definition of what, what a therapeutic relationship might be. And the relationship piece, I think, is key because it's that whole idea that we may need to tease apart in this episode of mm-hmm. transference and countertransference. But, but putting that aside for a moment is like a lot of the time in therapy, we're, we're not just talking about the patterns and the responses, but we're especially looking for ways they show up in the interaction. Like if someone gets triggered in the therapy room, that's ripe for here and now work mm-hmm. or that uh, is a lot easier to work with than just remembering something from a week or a year ago. Right. And, you know, we didn't intend for this episode to be a master class on every therapeutic approach that's out there because there are hundreds. Please no. <laughs> but I think a lot of them will take advantage of these, what you called the here and now interactions and the transference yeah. or counter-transference to help a person. Because, you know, another way to think of the therapy relationship is a laboratory. It's a little social microcosm, mm-hmm. right? And w- in that microcosm, you have a person who uh, is totally committed and dedicated to you and helping you overcome your challenges, mm-hmm. who is also a human being. So like I can get triggered by my clients, but you know, we've structured and we've been trained to structure the relationship such that we can identify those triggers in ourselves and put them aside or use them as tools, right? If this client is annoying me, it's quite possible that they have that effect on other people in their lives. Yeah. And it might have something to do with why their relationships aren't super good or they feel rejected. So you can use that data. You can use yourself as a tool, mm-hmm. as a therapist, with great caution and attention paid towards not getting ha- getting yourself in the way of the therapeutic process right? or projecting your own shit. Right, exactly. Yeah, I had one of my supervisors in graduate school said, Steve, if you want to be a good therapist, you have to take care of your own shit first. And by take care of, yeah, he didn't mean like you have to become a fully actualized Ubermensch, like you don't have to be a perfect person, but you have to develop a type and a level of awareness Mm -hmm. so that you can tell. You can tell if an emotional trigger in yourself is your stuff or is it um, like like we were talking about, um, something that is, would be a reasonable reaction uh, that anyone in that person's life would have. And then you can use it as sort of an emotional tuning fork. Like, oh, this this person's given off a frequency that they probably give off a lot in their life. Let me help them develop awareness around that. Mm-hmm. Let me help them then make some changes around that pattern. Yeah, no, that's I like that. And it reminds me of one of the most common um, signposts of transference that I'll look for is, or that I've, I guess I've encountered in these therapy dialogues is when a client is relying on you as a therapist to fix something in their lives. Mm. Um, it uh, reminds me of like in childhood, kids often, um, you know, in the earlier stages, especially don't solve their own problems. They'll turn to mom and dad and to help them fix it or tell them how, even if they could figure it out mm-hmm. on their own. And if a client is relying on you and you have that, that transference elicits something in you, you can be like, ah, they're looking to me as the grown up to fix something. And, and then the don't get in the way part is don't just reactively jump in and fix it like you might with your little, little kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it is something that, like we were saying, requires a lot of, uh, self-awareness as, as a helper, because, you know, maybe you were drawn to this work because you like helping people or you were put in a helping role when you were a kid. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you might feel this drive to jump in and sort of help them, fix them, uh, rescue them. And that's what we were talking about here. When you need to know the difference between your stuff and what's being evoked by the client's stuff, um, because you could then, you know, actually do some harm or at least not be very helpful. If yeah. you give in to that, you know, emotionally immature defense mechanism or a maladaptive pattern of them just wanting people to come rescue them by trying to rescue Should them. I stay or should I go? Tell me. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, that's a tricky part because you do have a lot of clients show up, say they're in a 
relationship quagmire mm-hmm. or and say you have a an opinion a strong yeah, one yeah. what do you do with that right yeah. well yeah and it's and you know some of that depends on the type of therapy you're doing i've certainly had uh, mentors and supervisors say never render an opinion don't i've had supervisors never say, ever <laughs> never ask a question in and out of therapy right so. yeah uh rendering opinions is is uh, perilous these days but um yeah i mean it again depends on the approach like the never ask a question was uh, something I got from a supervisor once. and But he was a, Roger, a disciple of Carl Rogers, right? Rogerian client-centered therapy, which its style mm-hmm. is typically if based on the assumption that if people are given this loving container with somebody who's a good reflective listener, they will move toward health on their own. They will, they will yeah. follow this natural human tendency towards self-actualization. All you need to do as a therapist, quote unquote, all you need to do as a therapist is provide for them Unconditional positive regard and mm-hmm. empathy. That does bring up one of my favorite mechanisms of change, though. And I do like to put aside the alphabet soup of flavors of therapy right. and try to look for the common themes or the underlying mechanisms of how they work. And one of them that I've that's really stood out to me as one of the top few most important and useful is the corrective emotional experience. Mm-hmm. And it... Uh, a lot like you said in that loving container or or you have someone there who's helping you figure it out um, instead of bolting or reacting in a maladaptive way to you or jumping in and fixing everything so you don't have to. Yeah, maybe we can give our listeners an example of a corrective emotional experience. Um, this is one of the things we love about psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, by the way, which we can meander into that topic it's a its ability to provide corrective, powerful, yeah. corrective emotional experiences. But yeah, what might be a good example of a corrective emotional experience for somebody in therapy? Well, you're scared to share something that you find very shameful uh, with your therapist because when you share it with your mom, she jumps on it. Yeah, and you get shamed, maybe. Yeah, and criticizes you. Um, but then when you bring it up, you muster up the courage to bring it up in that safe container therapy room and they don't react negatively. They actually hold it in love. Um, That's a corrective emotional experience. Mm -hmm. And you're laying down these new neuronal pathways of healing. um, And it might take a few of those, but but I can tell you there's nothing like the presence of a supportive other to help you heal some of these um, deep wounds of trauma, shame, and um, things of the past. Yeah. Yeah. And like you were saying, that that falls into the category of of what we what we in the research literature at least call common factors, right? There's specific factors for mm-hmm. when we're trying to test which psychotherapies work best and for which problems. There's a set of variables that are present in just about all the therapeutic approaches, mm-hmm. and we call those the common factors, right? And having a um, empathic listener is one of those common factors. You'd be hard-pressed to find a therapy that doesn't involve some degree of empathic reflective listening. And then having a corrective emotional experience is also pretty much universal, regardless of what kind of, at least it's on the menu. It's one of the things you're trying to help a person ha- uh, experience. Um, yeah. Regardless of which alphabet soup combination you tend to practice. And when I did uh, emotion focus therapy training with Les Greenberg, mm-hmm. um, that was one of the key tools of uh, one of the two ways of transforming emotion with emotion was through corrective emotional experiences. And because there's this interpersonal soothing, because it corrects these tightly held false pathogenic beliefs like, oh, I thought they were going to throw me out of the room when I shared that. Mm-hmm. And they didn't. And they actually still care about me. One of the things I really like about that therapy, EFT and IFS, is its internal family systems, IFS, is it's... It provides not only interpersonal, what did you call it? Interpersonal healing, soothing, soothing, neurobiology. Yeah. <laughs> well, it ca- it also causes intrapersonal soothing, right? Yeah. You have in within the self, you mm-hmm. have different parts. In the in EFT, you have like usually it's two chair work. You go back and forth between chairs yeah. where you represent parts of you that have this relationship internally, and then you sort of navigate. Uh, collaboration instead of conflict within your parts and sometimes in relationship to important people in your life right yeah it's either living people but sometimes it can be really powerful for people who are no longer in your life but you still carry them you have this archetype or a represent a representation of them that you carry around with you like with your parents for example yeah unresolved grief that are that's complicated yeah 
So that many roads lead to this, this Rome of corrective emotional experience. Um, other common factors are things like the working alliance. How much do you trust your therapist and how much do you feel like that you and your therapist are working toward a goal that you've both agreed to? Yeah. And how effective do you think the things, the conversations that you're having, the interventions that the therapist is recommending, how effective do you believe they are? Uh, we even have measures to measure these kinds of things in psychotherapy outcome research, like the working alliance inventory mm -hmm. is probably one yeah. of the most common ones. And this highlights for me one of the kind of theories I like of how the human mind works that helps in the therapy room, in psychedelic therapy as well, is the that we're prediction machines, mm. that we have these what you could call a hierarchical coding mechanism in our heads that tries to predict what's going to happen out there in this world of uncertainty and takes in sensory inputs, bottom up, um, assigns this hierarchy of uh, predictions and when you have a corrective experience, you were expecting something to happen, something else, that didn't happen, something else did, especially if it's like a soothing, internally soothing, interpersonally soothing, uh, corrective experience, then you start to rewire that pathway. So you can uh, not predict that the world is gonna hurt you every time. Right, yeah. and like you mentioned, it, takes, it can take a while for that software program to get updated and changed. Um, another way to describe this process is it's learning. Right, we yeah. we were we had we had come to some conclusions based on, you know, the way we were treated when we were young, some uh, salient, perhaps traumatic experiences we had early on in life, and we've developed this expectation, like you were saying, of the world. And then when you're given data that doesn't jive with that expectation, you can then update, like you were saying. And to me, that's you know, it's a it's a one way of describing how human beings can learn. So yeah. a corrective emotional experience is a learning experience. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of ways we teach in therapy, but yeah, it goes by many terms, I guess. And looking at it through Pavlov's lens mm -hmm. of extinction, or, you know, if you remember, if for anyone who's had psychology classes yeah, back to psych 101. the Pavlovian dogs and the bell making them salivate, if you just stop ringing the bell, that pattern of hear bell saliva occurs mm -hmm. that pattern will start to fade gradually um, or it could be kind of replaced with a different response but uh, learning occurs mm -hmm. yeah and we have entire therapeutic approaches based on these principles of learning on operant and classical conditioning yeah the idea that if you uh, are rewarded for a certain pattern of behavior that pattern of behavior is likely to persist if you're punished as a result of that behavior it's less likely to persist it's not so cut and dry, but it's cut and dry for some things. Like if you've ever trained a dog or a small human, you know, a child, <laughs> yeah, they respond to these interventions, these learning strategies. And let's look at like uh, combat-related PTSD as an example. You know, you have uh, um, someone who's, say, lost a limb in the service in a war, and, you know, every time they hear a loud noise, it lights off the amygdala alarms, uh, thinking you're back there and mm -hmm. there's an explosion and you're not safe. Um, but if you can use that extinction, like you were saying, to elicit uh, a response or get triggered a little bit manageably on purpose in a safe, supportive environment, then all of a sudden your cortex and your amygdala can kind of reintegrate and learn that it's safe, even though there was a loud noise. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So back, you know, we, so I guess we sort of answered the question, but does ther therapy work? Yes. For some people, some of the time for certain conditions in some ways. And this, what you did, the example you gave is a great example of how therapy can quote unquote work. It can change that conditioned relationship in your mind. And, you know, the research we mention on here often maps is uh, phase three data now that's coming out. Yeah. They, they released half of it so far. Yeah. Yeah. But at least the phase two data was really, really promising with respect to MDMA-assisted therapy for mm -hmm. PTSD in providing those corrective emotional experiences because they're, yeah. they're escorting these trauma survivors into their trauma, right? Into the memory of their trauma. And they're able to sit with it in a non, 
you know, activated state. So instead of what mm-hmm. they would normally feel, right, this central nervous system activation, panic, fear, flashbacks, they can be with it in, in the MDMA state, the more loving state. And I remember hearing Rick Doblin talk about what, you know, it's rudimentary, but this is probably generally what's happening in the brain, they think, with MDMA, where calms down the amygdala, that sort of fear center. Yeah. It uh, increases connectivity between the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampal regions. So you're, you're getting better memory retrieval mm-hmm. and better learning as a result of memory retrieval and increases activity in the prefrontal cortex. So you can make more rational sense of what's going on. And your mind is awash with all the great fun neurotransmitters yeah. like oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin. No, I think that's a really good point because when you're looking at deeply entrenched maladaptive patterns. I think there are two ways, two main ways to address them. And extinction um, isn't the most effective, like the most, the quickest way to do it. Mm-hmm. It takes time to relearn those, whereas the other path you could call like memory reconsolidation. Mm-hmm. It's more of how um, MDMA-assisted their psychotherapy is working. You've got the trigger. You've got the response. You've got this awareness of... Uh, of the situation that it's safe and you have a window of opportunity to work in to lay down the new memory tracks of um, or reconnect those disconnected pathways of of you know safety and we don't want to overstate uh these results either like the this is not you take an mdma pill have a trip for 10 hours and congratulations you're cured this is in the context of in case people who don't know like yeah this is in the context of 40. 40 plus hours of psychotherapy, at mm-hmm. least two, maybe three medicine sessions. Yeah, three in the PTSD studies. Right. And, uh, you know, you hear, at least I heard some anecdotal reports that, from the therapists who have run these trials that uh, a lot of these people struggled hard yeah. in between sessions. They required a lot of support. Mm-hmm. You can almost predict, like, we get asked a lot about um, psychedelics, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, um, you can almost predict uh, who's going to have a difficult experience versus whose is less likely to be so. Because if, if you've had decades of, of really, you know, tragically unfair, traumatic things happening, mm-hmm. you know, there's a the very good chance that that stuff is going to come to the surface during psychedelic experiences, including MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. And that's why we do it, right. you know, to work with it. But, but that's also why it's really important to pay attention to those set and setting factors and the preparation phase and what happens next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's why we take psychedelic uh, use so seriously, because certainly there are good arguments to be made about uh, the free consciousness movement and being able to alter your consciousness if you want mm-hmm. to, without permission from, you know, the big brother or the government yeah. or whatever. Um, but you can wander into this territory ill-prepared territory of psychedelic medicine, psychedelic substances, and uh, and it can stir a lot of those things up that you're talking about and can be really, really destabilizing. So, mm-hmm. you know, using these powerful tools in the context of a trained professional, um, a very supportive environment, something we are constantly advoc- advocating for. You know, I just have this urge to debate everything you say, even though I totally agree <laughs> with it. Just because Play the devil's advocate. No, I'm just thinking of... Uh, it's easy for the pendulum to swing too far in any direction, mm-hmm. right? Of like, you're not ready for trauma work because you're not perfectly stable and right. one zillion percent supported. Um, I just was having this meandering thought of uh, what happens in like the Zen view of awakening. We mm-hmm. talked about awakening recently. You could be walking along and have a sudden awakening and life just gets wild and weird, but... Um, and then what do you do with it? And that can be healing. It can be traumatic. Yeah. We've said on the podcast multiple times that healing can be disruptive. Um, and we certainly don't want to try to avoid the disruption because it's the disruption is part of the, the, like the active ingredient. Yeah. You shake it up like a snow globe (laughs) so you can, um, you know, reset some of that, some of those patterns. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Cognitive dissonance seems relevant to this mm. discussion because, I don't know, that term I've just always loved for some strange reason because you've got um, this tension between your old prediction mechanisms and then this new corrective experience or this awareness you have of, oh, maybe not everyone is out to get me or maybe I'm not 
totally unworthy mm-hmm. of love. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you've got this tension that you might call cognitive dissonance, and then therapy involves how do we work with that. Right. Yeah, and if, if, you know, if you hearken back, if you took one to a cognitive science class in school, human beings are driven to resolve this dissonance mm-hmm. one way or another because it is so uncomfortable psychologically. And a lot of times what they do, so let's say dissonance is caused by old beliefs being confronted with new data. Um, and you're resisting updating the software like we've been talking about. I'm going to torture this metaphor to death, but... Do it. Um, <laughs> and that resistance causes the friction. So you can do one of two things. You can update your beliefs. You can submit to the new data yeah. and say, okay, I guess I was wrong. I was wrong when I thought that I was a terrible person and I have this therapist telling me I'm not. Well, maybe, maybe she's right. Maybe I need to update my... Or you can reject the data. Ignore, spam folder. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Delete. And then you're further entrenched, right? Yeah. Uh, if the new data is the accurate... And some some conditions, like that, are highly, you know, deeply entrenched. They've been there for a long time. You almost expect that um, when some new sensory data comes in, which it always does, evidence to the contrary of your tightly held uh, prior beliefs or predictions, when it doesn't match, um, some patterns get really good at just re- rejecting the new data, and that's where I think psychedelics come in and where you're shake it up or chaos comment comes in really handy Mm -hmm. is um, in this idea of the free energy principle. I love that we can bring kind of all these different disciplines and theories of the mind and a little bit of splash of physics into into the equation because the free energy principle or the entropic brain theory suggests that, uh, yeah, we can we can melt those patterns through psychedelics or other ways, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And then we can more consciously reconstruct them. Yeah, it makes the brain, the brain more plastic, malleable. Yeah. Like the, uh, the um, term out of Carhart Harris and colleagues at Imperial College was rebus, or relaxed belief under psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And using a metaphor of like taking a psychedelic medicine is like heating up metal so you could bend it shape it and then as it cools down uh you know working in that uh therapeutic process and the therapeutic integration you can shape it more consciously into more adaptive patterns it's one of the things that had me so excited about psychedelic medicine when i first you know started researching and learning about it because as a therapist i i noticed how challenging that was for myself and my clients to heat up the mind sufficiently that it could be malleable in this way because you know, we also have these interesting terms in, in the therapy profession uh, uh, where people resist change, right? There's resistance or there's defense mechanisms mm-hmm. where people argue for their limitations. Um, there's ways that people, even though it's not working th- for them, want to stay in their patterns. Or having is evidence of wanting is another fun catchphrase that we sometimes use. If you argue for your self-defeating, self-limiting beliefs, you get to keep you them. Get to keep them. <laughs> Yay. Yay. <laughs> and, you know, if you say these things to people, sometimes they'll, they'll, they are, you know, gives them a little bit of an insight. But normally it's like, well, okay, Screw you, whatever. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't help. You're just being mean. So, yeah, we typically don't throw that in people's faces. But. What's the, the role of being mean in therapy? <laughs> That's actually a good question. Uh, we, there's this fun, I think it's fun at least, maybe because I'm mean, but uh, this fun intervention called the paradoxical intention where, you know, let's say somebody, I'm trying to give a good example of this, somebody says, yeah, you know, I'm just not really, a, I'm not a very impressive person. And you say, yeah, you are, you're kind of the worst person ever. Like you, mm-hmm. you're, you're woefully unimpressive. I mean, worse than unimpressive. And most people kind of catch on to what you're doing, but it's like, no, well, I mean, I'm bad, but I'm not, I'm not that bad. And then they, they sort of back off mm-hmm. from the extreme thinking a little bit. That could be mean, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember... The first time I saw that in action in EFT chair work, some of the advanced moves, mm-hmm. <laughs> like taking people into the gutter to retrieve the deep and rooted shame and play it out, work with it. Uh, you don't want to finish that chair exercise or leave it unfinished. In the middle of it, yeah. Yeah, that's like open psychological surgery that you need to wind down mm-hmm. and get to the, the corrective healing side of the coin. Right. 
Yeah. I think sometimes, you know, I, I really loved your question about being mean because, you know, depending on the culture you grow up in, there are, there are different expectations around niceness and politeness. Like, mm-hmm. oh, we don't, we don't say those things. We don't actually tell the truth to each other. How are you feeling? Oh, fine. You know, like, uh, oh, you look great. Or you know, there's, there's varying degrees to which we are painfully honest with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people like therapy because their therapists are sort of brutally honest with them. Yeah. You know, not that I love Dr. Phil, but he had this, uh, cause I don't actually, but he had, he had this fun catchphrase, like, how's that working for you? You know, people would say, well, this and this, and there's a lot Ouch. of complaining and okay, well, how's that working for you? And it is, it's like cold water in the face. It's like, oh, it's not yeah. working for me, actually. Yeah, you don't want to beat around the bush or um, or contribute to someone staying stuck, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, we do have to check that, that our own people-pleasing, our own uh, tendency to be over-agreeable, yeah. especially in therapy. Because I've heard time and time again how clients, you know, I... I really rely on my therapist to tell it like it is or Mm -hmm. like to tell me the truth and that is like we were saying last time you know one of the greatest gifts we can give another human is to be truthful right and sometimes when i'm talking to a client about the relationship like it's the intake session and we're talking about expectations i might say um it my objective is not to make you like me my objective is not to be your buddy Mm -hmm. um we you'll probably tell me things you'll never tell anybody else and I'll probably say things to you that you will never hear anybody else say to you. And sometimes they're going to not feel good. But remember, the objective isn't to make you feel good, right? Sometimes yeah. I'll say, I don't want you to feel better. I want you to feel better. I want you to learn how to feel in a better, more efficient, more healthy way. Yeah. Well, again, more fun catchphrases. But <laughs> yeah, it usually sort of, it just sets, sets the stage for a different kind of interaction, a different kind of relationship. Because mm-hmm. sometimes... Pretty often, you do have to feel worse in some ways before you feel better. You've mm-hmm. got to bring the stuff up to be able to work with it, or the only way out is through. Right. Yeah. I mean, avoidance is at the root of a lot of what makes us suffer perpetually. All the entrenchment you were talking about is is because of, for, for one reason or another, and we all do it, I know I certainly do, um, is attributable to our tendency to avoid what is hard, yeah. avoid what is difficult. And so in, in the skills department, I think an, another common theme I'm, I'm seeing, at least in the therapies I like, mm-hmm. is the um, learning how to self-observe and learning to be self-aware, learning to stay present with the discomfort, because how are you going to do this work of extinction or memory reconsolidation otherwise, even with the presence of a supportive other therapist? Right. And some therapies are, are structured more around trying to occasion insight, self like self knowledge like you're talking about or insight um and you know based on the the idea that if if with insight a person will then make changes like with a greater self knowledge they are then better equipped to make changes yeah and then there are other theories of change or therapeutic approaches that would say insight's actually not as important as just better conditioning um but you know like most things in the world uh, i think the truth lies somewhere in between i think most effective therapies are going to involve you know, certain types of insight. It's going to promote certain types of insight. It's going to have corrective emotional experiences like you talked about. It's going to have those other common factors that we discussed, the safe container of being seen, being heard, being understood, being validated. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the more modern mindfulness-based therapies. Yeah, the the so-called third wave psychotherapies. I mean, if if you go way back to Viktor Frankl's writings on... Mm -hmm. uh, um, logo therapy. Yeah. Like between, uh, stimulus and response, that's your chance to decide how you act. And you do have to bring some awareness or put some space in there. Um, or else you're reacting automatically based on your patterns. Yeah. I like that way of conceptualizing change in psychotherapy. Like you can think of therapy in that way as like physical therapy. Sometimes I like yeah. to make the comparison to practice. physical therapy. Yeah, it's practice. You're you're moving an injured joint through range of motion. And, yeah. you know, if if you didn't learn to tolerate the discomfort, you might continue to just react to the presence of discomfort. And then you might brace, you might hold that joint still, and then you lose function, right? You mm-hmm. might not be in as much pain, 
but then it's not as functional. You're doing, yeah. And then your freedoms are limited because you can't do as much as you would be able to if you had gone through the discomfort and and then and it had granted you options. So mm-hmm. there's that black box between stimulus and response that I think, you know, as you were, you're probably getting to the idea that like mindfulness-based approaches and others can help you, I don't know what you would say, but like widen that time or yeah. uh, that time in which you are volitional. You have the opportunity, the chance, the skill, the ability to then decide instead of reacting according to conditioning. Yeah, because if we use a therapy example, take binge eating disorder, for example, or um, where you have something might trigger an urge. It might be a stressful situation, a negative emotion might trigger an urge to engage in using food to self-soothe. And some people are prone to have that spin out of control that we call a binge episode. And then there's a lot of discomfort after, there's some shame, there's even some loss of control during. But, But one intervention that has been striking to me to watch, and it's not always easy in the real world, is just putting some space in between stimulus and when you respond, even and how when you respond, even if it means setting a timer and say for the next five minutes, <laughs> I am not, you know, whatever happens, I am not starting a binge episode. And then that gives you a little time to go phone a friend, you know, go down your list of other, other paths. Right. Know? Yeah. And that sort of trots into the, the world of, of just of habit change. Right. And all this stuff is a giant Venn, di- Venn diagram mm-hmm. where it all overlaps. Right? We're just jumping around the Venn circles. Yeah. Yeah. It's what happens when you've spent years packing a lot of stuff in your brain and then it just sort of is leaking out in random ways. But that's another name for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Leaky brain, maybe. Um, but yeah, it's you're you're changing the relationship between the cue and the behavior. Right. Um, so you've got this, in case of binge eating, maybe it's an emotional cue or maybe mm-hmm. it's an environmental cue. This is the same for addiction, the same for most habits, right? Lots of good books on habits. One I really like is called Atomic Habit by uh, James Clear. Yeah, that's a good one. Another one, uh, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. Two non-mental health professionals who just wrote really good good books about habit. Um, but you have this habit loop, right? There's the cue and then depending on whose loop you're looking at, it's it's the the craving, yeah. And then the routine or the the actual behavior itself, which leads to a reward, which reinforces the connection between the cue and the behavior, the cue and the craving. So I hear you saying, you know, let's let's calm down, let's create some space before we just impulsively and reflexively engage in the behavior. And that gives us the chance, the opportunity to do these other things, which will hopefully weaken the connection between the maladaptive behavior in the cue and strengthen a, a connection between the cue and maybe a more adaptive coping skill, yeah. like and, phone a friend. And the frequency and severity of the pattern and how maladaptive it really is helps determine the level of intervention needed, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this all may sound obvious, but I would just like, even for my own purposes, mm-hmm. to like walk through it out loud, taking another example of say bulimia nervosa. I know I'm using eating disorder examples here because that's a a field I tend to focus on a lot Mm -hmm. is bulimia nervosa where there's binge purge cycles. And if someone is binging and purging multiple times a day and to the point where even their laboratory values might be thrown off, um, you know, potassium out of whack or something like that, sometimes an intervention, a big corrective emotional experience intervention is needed, or someone might need to go into a treatment center for a few weeks where you can't engage in those patterns because you're surrounded by um, environmental supports and the supportive uh, presence of others. So that pattern can go down a few notches with extinction and, mm-hmm. and reconsolidation. And then you can uh, reintegrate back into your own environment where those triggers were previously too much for you to handle on your own. I'm glad you're bringing up yeah. those examples because, you know, we, when you talk about habit change, you can talk about things that seem so, um, what would be the right word? Uh, like not as serious. I can't think of a fancy word, but like not as serious, meaning, oh, I just, maybe I... Um, like New Year's resolutions. Yeah, like I've got this bad habit around not exercising or whatever. Between that and something like an opiate addiction or an eating disorder, where you might need to go into a center like you're describing more than once. You know, these are you you called them intractable earlier. And There's yeah. 
And that's like that's a good word to describe some of these problems. There's nothing weak about that one bit. Mm-hmm. Like that's a that's a courageous act because you know what? Like we all are in this same kind of habit loop together where sometimes you just can't think yourself out of it. Right. You know? And, and um, the difference is just that some of those um, patterns and maladaptive responses were just more dangerous that um, showed up in someone's life for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. It makes me wonder, because I'm not oh, very familiar with the research, it makes me wonder about what is Ibogaine doing? When people go into New Mexico and mm-hmm. they're getting Ibogaine treatment for some of the most intractable patterns that people people can have, like an opiate addiction or alcoholism, um, what's it doing that helps that that gives it so like this promising efficacy in helping people break these patterns? I could try to comment on the what, not so much the why, yeah. but uh, I remember when I started working with ayahuasca in the jungle, uh, there was a good friend who was really well versed in. Iboga, mm-hmm. who had traveled and spent a lot of time with the Dwiti tribes and um, sat in on a lot of uh, indigenous use and ceremonial mm-hmm. use of that. And um, I was just asking him and a number of others their their experience of uh, how did Ibogaine or Iboga feel versus ayahuasca. And first of all, ayahuasca is more often thought to help you move stuck emotions and then and there's a lot of overlap on these Venn circles as well. Mm-hmm. And then Ibogaine or Iboga is uh, more likely to show you your patterns, like give you a view of them and then uh, change them. And it happens to kick the cravings out of people uh, on things like opiates and nic- nicotine. Mm-hmm. Kick the cravings out. That's just so, so interesting. Yeah. I can't wait for more research on this because I had, uh, speaking to somebody who had one of those uh, Ibogaine experiences and she described it as, uh, like defragging. We used to have to yeah. defrag our computers and that, like run yep. a defragmentation program. Like and and uh, it, she was like, it literally felt like it was scanning the lines of code one by one and it would find something that was a broken line of code and deleting it. And it just, it's really fun, like metaphors and, and visions and experiences on stuff like ayahuasca and Ibogaine. Machine elves defragging your brain. Yeah, who wouldn't yeah. want that? I certainly <laughs> do. I don't know. The machine elf thing still... Uh creeps me out a little bit. I mean, <laughs> like just the term. You mean machine elf isn't a lovely term that inspires like sugar plum fairies? No, it is kind of terrifying, right? I'm thinking of like a steampunk Lord of the Rings. I don't know that I would love an encounter with the machine elves. But in people's experiences, they do show up in a number of ways. They mm-hmm. like, they're often called entities so, mm-hmm. or it could be like a psycho-spiritual entity or being. Yeah, this is where we kind of wander into some really fun territory, the transpersonal territory and kind of the speculative territory. Like, what what is it that we are experiencing? Especially when it's there are some common experiences. This entity experience is really common on, on DMT-containing psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's often, you know, they're often at the periphery. They often have sort of a, a playful feminine energy. Like, there are these fun commonalities uh, that we see in these experiences. Like, what is it? What are we accessing? If anything, oh, it's fascinating the the commonalities, like you said, and the varieties of the psychedelic experience in general. Um, seeing the patterns or signatures that mm-hmm. each type of medicine has, like whether like you're doing a, geometry, or... yeah, doing a psilocybin um, dosing session or an ayahuasca journey or iboga. You know, they're they're distinct, but overlapping like we saw in that research that compared LSD and psilocybin and people weren't that good at telling them apart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, distinct but overlapping. And, you know, to tie it back into our just general therapy conversation, that's, you could say the same thing about a lot of psychotherapeutic approaches. There are things that make them distinct Mm -hmm. and those things maybe make them certain ones better for certain conditions than others. Like, um, you know, OCD and phobias tend to respond pretty well to exposure and response prevention or just, uh, you know, on the the sort of conditioning behavioral approaches Mm -hmm. as opposed to insight-oriented therapies. I know plenty of people with OCD who have tremendous insight into the fact that their obsessions and compulsions are irrational, for example. But knowing that they're irrational often does nothing to help you change those patterns. It's more that corrective emotional experience 
that you get by exposing yourself to the condition that you're afraid of. And then enough times, frequently enough to update your brain, like, hey, you actually, you know, your, your mother's back doesn't shatter when you step on a crack. Like, let's step on some cracks and we'll call mom. Mm-hmm. We need to we need to change this, and it's not through, I like that. <laughs> not until repeated exposure does those things update. So yeah, mm-hmm. certain approaches work better for certain kinds of problems. And because that's a good point, I was just going to ask you in the spirit of practicality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so we're not just waxing philosophical on this stuff. What do you tell people when they ask about how to find a the right therapist. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And I get that question probably every week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who do I go to? Like, sorry, everyone's full, right? That's a problem across the entire nation, unfortunately. But How about robots? <laughs> well, we've talked a lot about that, Reed. Like the, it's, there's some interesting data out there about AI therapists. A lot of it's not data. A lot of it's just uh, sort of case studies and, and Silicon Valley trying to take over the psychotherapy world. But, I think they should be called coaches, but the coaches are not going to like that. No. <laughs> I mean, no. I just... I just think it it fits more in that realm, and I love coaching too. I did yeah. have a client who used one of these apps, and you know the app was programmed. I wouldn't call it AI; it was more of just kind of a procedural chatbot. But yeah, you know she would she would type in, it would like, "How are you feeling this morning?" And she'd do a little journaling, and then it would say, "Oh," and it would look for certain words, the occurrence of certain words, right? I forget like the natural <laughs> linguistic programming or something like that. There's yeah. a way that it'll scan your yeah. text, and and if it detects sadness, it might say, I'm "Sorry to hear that." Tell me more. Um, and there's plenty of dystopian movies if you want to watch that uh, will freak you out about this, like Her uh, with Joaquin Phoenix. But yeah, um, or Ex Machina is another one. That was wild. Yeah, but <laughs> this is a client who had a really hard time talking to me. I mean, I, I I saw her every week for a long time. She had really serious OCD and and really significant mm-hmm. um, social anxiety, and so sometimes periods of silence of like 20 minutes where just she was trying, but she just couldn't. Mm-hmm. And so I'd have her journal and she'd bring in this, these like long journal pages that was so insightful. And there was so much that mm-hmm. she had to say. Um, arguably she got more out of the, the robot than she did out of our sessions. At least she was able to talk and process more. Mm. The combination of the two helped a lot. Like, you know, yeah. could, she'd bring in her insights and we'd go through them. But I'm a, I'm a big fan of that approach. Like we talk about this a lot with our clinicians mm-hmm. um, in clinics is um, why don't we do more CBT-I for insomnia, mm-hmm. an evidence-based approach that's not a medication intervention um, when we're dishing out all these meds, um, kind of a pet peeve of mine, but it's hard to find someone who's just going to give you CBT for insomnia in a structured way routinely when there's a therapist shortage and all these, this alphabet soup of therapies to, to learn and, and uh, navigate um, as a client or as a therapist. So I, I like having these approaches where it can be either manualized in a workbook or in an app um, and you have your, your skilled, supportive psychotherapist and you have a coach. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, I think the apps are good in as much as they they bring supportive content to people who might not be able to access support otherwise. Mm-hmm. I don't think they are a one hundred percent like a one to one replacement of what you could get from actually meeting with a human being and getting psychotherapy, especially if you're going to do something really intense and complicated like EMDR or something like that. Psychoanalysis. Yeah. <laughs> um, Play chess. But your question was like how how would I answer that question? Like yeah. that people often ask, how do I find the right therapist? How do I know who might the right therapist for me is? Um, the grammar of that sentence fell apart. But, uh, <laughs> Good. Yeah. But like, I think honestly, it's really hard to predict. There are certain factors like when we've studied this, that people are generally more comfortable with, uh, and this is a generalization, but generally more comfortable with people of the same gender, similar background, or at least gender identity, similar backgrounds, especially if your background is one of a minority in whatever culture that you're in, um, because they just, they tend to feel like there might be a shared understanding of this person. They get me. Yeah. Yeah. And they get me is something you really want to feel when you're with a therapist. Yeah. It takes a lot of that hopelessness out of the equation. Right. So that's something to think about. A lot of we therapists have just profiles online nowadays. You can even see reviews for therapists, but Read those with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So, uh, and then finances is always often a really, really big challenge for people. So sometimes we're limited to people if we have insurance who are on in America, at least on our insurance panel. I think you can overthink the question too much as well as yeah. a risk and you can bypass the work by jumping from one therapist to the next. That's mm-hmm. something I've seen way too many times is, uh, I say when you embark on a course of therapy, commit to yourself that unless there's X, Y, Z, huge, egregious, uh, you know, errors in, in the process, then stick with it, give it a chance of X number of sessions. Um, because if you're getting your buttons pushed, that might just mean it's working. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I, it's, People ask me, like, how many sessions should I try? And it's, I mean, I can throw an arbitrary number at you, but do it. <laughs> really, it's, it's, uh, you should have at least, should, I encourage you to have at least one um, tense interaction with your therapist where you confront them about your concerns, like, hey, I don't think this is working or whatever, before you decide to go to somebody else and see mm-hmm. how they handle that. Cause, yeah. you know, not every therapist, will handle that well. Remember, therapists are people. And just like there are good carpenters and bad carpenters, there are good therapists and shitty therapists. Yeah. Um, so it's not that you have to stay with your therapist because we're telling you to try to see it through. But um, get, play with it a bit. Like give them a chance. See if yeah. how they handle that. And if your trust in them builds and grows, then it's a good sign that, that you ought to stick with them. Yeah, I like that. And that's that's an approach I've almost insisted on in a number of settings where I've supervised clinicians and people Mm -hmm. are uh, doctor or therapist shopping is like put it right back into the therapy room you two have a have a frank discussion about it before we're even going to consider that right yeah Yeah, Um, and I'll say some some of the best therapy outcomes I've had with clients have been after several um, like therapeutic relationship repairs where mm -hmm. I've said something I remember one client came to me and said uh, I was really offended when you yawned in our session. And, uh, of course I, my, in, in my, all the, all my parts get activated. I'm thinking, well, I was tired or do people just yawn? Like, come on. Right. I'm getting a little defensive inside. Um, but because I'm a trained therapist, damn it. I did not get defensive in the interaction mm-hmm. and I reacted in a very, you know, therapist type of way. And, uh, she trusted me so much more. After that yeah. interaction, we were able to do a, a lot of really interesting work about why she felt the way she did in response to my yawn and where else does she feel that way in her life. And But if I just said, you're right, I tend to yawn, I have sleep apnea, uh, can't promise I'm mm-hmm. not going to yawn, you might have to find a different therapist. Or if she just had gone home and been like, he yawned, he's probably bored, he doesn't like me, and never came back, then we wouldn't have been able to experience the improvements that she experienced as a result of continuing therapy after that. A corrective emotional experience. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, so sticking with it long enough to see whether or not it's going to help is advisable. The combination of therapy and medications is people are things people often ask about. We're talking about you know how does therapy work? Does it work? We could easily have an episode on antidepressants or psychotropic medications with the same question. Uh, One thing I will say is that most of the research suggests that the combination of the two is more effective than either one by themselves, depending on the condition. Is that your understanding too, Reed, that if it's combining the right psychotropic med with the right therapist is kind of the best? Yeah, it's always it's always my default answer. That's an easy one. Mm-hmm. Which one should I do? Meds or therapy or meds and therapy? <laughs> it's always um either start with therapy and then if you need meds, keep the therapy going or if you're on meds, do meds and therapy. <laughs> is that a yeah. common I mean I know several psychiatrists, but is that a common belief among the psychiatrists that you roll with uh start with therapy? Well, it's a good question. I think there may be that belief in most, mm-hmm. but uh, when the rubber meets the road in the real world and you're faced with finding a therapist who's available and accessible and affordable right. to the client, then um, you might be dishing out meds way more or way sooner than you'd like to because of that. Yeah. A real world systems problem. Right. Yeah. yeah, and I've noticed a pattern in some clinicians, you know, where 
psychiatrist or other prescribers of psychotropic meds, if they encounter a, a roadblock or just the client's not making a lot of progress, then it's maybe you should try therapy. And then on the therapist side, you know, not making progress, well, maybe you ought to be on some meds. Yeah. I've seen that pattern sometimes, which, you know, maybe it's an indication that both would be better. Yeah, because if you look at uh, one of the more common conditions in mental health, ADHD, Mm. you know, which back when I started in this field, the prevalence rate was cited at around like 5%. And now more recently, it's above 10%. 105%. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And climbing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, and that's another rabbit hole we'll avoid. But uh, we may have covered on another episode. An episode called ADHD. Yeah, go look at it. Yeah. But uh, the, I think the ideal path would be to, even though stimulus work really well, some Mm. of the best response rates we find, um, still I would much rather start a client, kid or adult, on psychotherapy. But where do you find a psychotherapist who's going to focus on ADHD, who's available and covered by insurance, your insurance? Right. It's difficult. It's difficult. And I know, of course, we would be the people to ask these questions, and we would love to have really, really clear answers for the people in our lives, for our clients, for Uh people listening. (laughs) But there's a huge but coming up. Um, but these are just the, this is the reality of mental health care in America right now. It's really difficult to find the specialists that you want at the price you can afford with the availability that works for you. Yeah. And this, it's well said. And it, it brings to mind that there are two forces at play. Like one, the stigma is reducing mm-hmm. and people are being more vulnerable around their mental health and more willing to address it, less shame around asking for help in that way, which I think is is amazing. Um, And uh, also, in this difficult time we live in, and when people are turning towards their working on their mental health more, we have a shortage in the profession, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah, a shortage of mental health professionals. Um, You know, being a mental health professional is hard. It uh, isn't incredibly lucrative for most of us, uh, like a lot of helping professions, you know? Yeah. And so you have this sort of increased supply, or excuse me, um, it's an increasing supply, but it's not increasing fast enough to meet the demand. Yeah. And I like, back to the analogy you brought up of physical therapy, I've used Mm. that time and time again, that, you know, healing or recovery from whatever the struggle is, is a lot like physical therapy. And it takes, you know, repetitive, consistent visits and a lot of practice in between. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you won't see the results necessarily overnight. Right. Um, and it does take patience. It is one of the reasons we are so attracted to psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, um, or I should say one of the reasons we are so attracted, is I think it has the potential to address this from at least one angle. Because, you know, some of the preliminary data suggest that um, you can get there faster with psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. And by there, I mean um, you're well enough that you might not need further intervention, that you're well-resourced enough that you can, you know, go it on your own. So that's one of the ways, at least Reed and I are are trying to approach this problem, is as we both research and provide psychedelic-assisted treatment, is uh, just trying to help people with a powerful treatment so they don't need as much. Yeah, accelerated courses of therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, anything else about why psychotherapy works, uh, how it works? Uh, of course, as usual, our podcast has been exhaustive. We have covered in every single point that is possible to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully you can detect my irony in my voice. But yeah, anything you think is noteworthy that we ought to You know, cover? as we talk about... Uh, these patterns and how we have corrective emotional experiences to heal those old wounds and lay down new predictions, or when we have memory reconsolidation or extinction of patterns. Um, It just reminds me of this overarching goal is not to just fix those in the therapy room, but help the client learn, develop the skills and confidence to correct and self-correct themselves throughout their lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I mean, and the, what is the expectation going into therapy? It's it, a good life, a mentally healthy life is not one free from discomfort. You know, if anything, it's one where you feel equipped to navigate discomfort mm-hmm. such that you can live a life that is 
meaningful, a life that is filled with love and freedom and peace of mind and aliveness. Um, and, and if you can do that, then you're going to live a pretty, good, pretty, pretty decent life. So to that end, we will continue to do our work as mental health professionals. And for those of you listening who are in the profession, thank you for all your dedicated work and for listening. And for those of you who aren't, we love you. Thank you for being our, <laughs> our loyal listeners and fans. Good chat, Steve. Good chat. Good right intro there. and closing. Thank <laughs> you. Yes. Not too painfully. You can awkward. cut that out if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Every time Reed compliments me, we should, we should do a, a highlight reel. Copy paste it. There we go. All right. Thanks, okay. man. See ya. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. It means a lot to me. Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers is brought to you by Novamind, a mental health company that specializes in psychedelic medicine and research. You can learn more about Novamind's mission to increase access to legal, safe, and evidence-based psychedelic medicine at novamind.ca. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you'd like to reach out to us with questions, suggestions, scathing criticisms, etc., please email us at psychfrontiers at novamind.ca. Thanks again. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.